Hello, and thank you for joining us. Today's webinar is Laser Ablation 101, an introduction to the technique of LAICP-MS. Our presenter today is Lucas Smith, Director of Business Development for Teledyne CTEC. We will be taking questions, so feel free to submit your questions throughout the presentation using the question feature, and your questions will be addressed at the end of the presentation. Also, this webinar is being recorded and will be available for viewing within a couple of days. You will receive an email notification of its availability. Now I'll turn it over to our presenter, Lucas Smith. Thank you, Shelley. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for joining today's webinar, which is intended to provide an introduction to the technique of laser ablation. Now, when we say introduction, please keep in mind that's exactly what we mean as I'll cover a lot of the technique's fundamentals and I'll try and present it for the true layman. Uh, but please keep in mind that ordinarily, um, you know, it's not uncommon for me to uh, visit a university or a commercial lab uh, and provide this kind of information over the course of, of a couple of hours. And today, of course, we're gonna try and squeeze that into 30 minutes. Uh, so we obviously won't be able to touch on everything, but I think that we'll be able to give a, a solid foundation um, a good place to start and ask questions from. Now, for those of you that are interested in a more in-depth look, uh, either at the history of the technique, recent advances uh, advances in it, or uh, detailed applications, please know that we're gonna continue this as a series for the next two weeks. And, and I know that a lot of you have already registered for those. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about the uh, uh, both of those seminars um, as we continue through. Okay, so as far as content goes, what are we gonna to cover today? Well, we're gonna to start by defining what laser ablation is. And as you can imagine, it probably wouldn't be much of an introduction to the technique if we didn't start there. Um, we will talk about it relative to other analytical techniques and talk about some of the advantages uh, that it provides, um, uh, exactly why we should be looking into it. Uh, we'll also talk about the different laser sources and how to select between them. And we'll talk about some of the more important laser topics, uh, such as washout times and fractionation, before finishing with some uh, application examples and, of course, the Q&A session. Okay. So for starters, what is laser ablation? Well, in its most basic form, the idea of laser ablation is that we're going to take a uh, beam of concentrated light, we're going to blast the surface of a sample, um, which could be a, a variety of things. And when we do that, we're going to ablate it. We're going to remove uh, some amount of material from the surface of that sample. How much depends on a number of uh, uh, factors, including you know how powerful the, the, the light was, uh, the density of the material, um, how transparent it was and a number of other factors but we're going to take some of that material we're going to ablate it and kind of blow it up into an analytical plume that comes off and swept into um, into the icp torch okay um, so this is in direct uh, comparison to the uh, traditional elemental analysis uh, by aqueous uh, icp uh, oes or ms the difference essentially being that we get to avoid the entirety of the dissolution step uh, that comes first. So we're able to uh, we're able to avoid the digestion with acids. We're able to avoid the requirement for a microwave or a, 
a hot block in order to help that digestion process, and it saves a lot of time because of it. Um, we also then are able to uh, to realize the the second major benefit uh, after uh, avoiding the dissolution step, which is the maintenance, or the maintaining of the spatial resolution for the sample. So if you were to take any sample, regardless of what it is, it could be a rock, it could be a microchip or anything else, you think that if you were to take that sample and do this by, by traditional aqueous analysis, you would start by dissolving it and then put the resulting uh, acid mixture into the ICPMS. And essentially whatever was in that rock or microchip is now in one homogeneous uh, solution that's going to be analyzed. What laser ablation allows us to do is start with the solid samples. So by avoiding the dissolution step, we're able to tell if you know one corner of the microchip has the same elemental composition as another corner, or be able to go through layers of it and analyze each individually without it being one completely dissolved sample. Okay, so what is laser ablation and specifically why do we care? You know, kind of uh, diving a little bit deeper into that concept. Um, there's some specific advantages that this poses for us. Um, first of all, it's, it's very fast or can be very fast in comparison, um, especially if you consider some of the ways that, that this technique started. You know, it has its origins in geochemistry where people were using perchloric acid or HF, you know, dangerous um, uh, acids that, uh, that you'd prefer not to have around in, in a lot of cases. Um, you'd have to go through that dissolution step, which can be time-consuming. You also end up with uh, with waste that you, know, if you have the expense of the acids. So this can be very quick. Uh, it can reduce that cost um, and the labor-intensive sample prep. Um, I always take pause there to say that um, I get questions with, with folks that ask if they're able to just take any sample and place it in a sample chamber and ablate it. And the answer most of the time is, yeah, kind of. Um, <laughs> like anything else, I put into the better the end result will be. But uh, at the end of the day, the sample prep is normally quite a bit quicker than it would be uh, through dissolution. Well, all we really need to worry about is making sure that we have a, a flat surface and that it is uh, perpendicular to the beam coming down. Okay. Um, how we mount it and whatnot, of course, comes into it as well. Um, but like I say, in most cases, the sample prep is, is minimal in comparison. You can also use this with a technique with just about any kind of sample. I've mentioned a couple of examples of microchips and rocks. Um, in ecology, otolith is a, is a very common application, and otolith being uh, the essentially the, uh, the bone found within a fish's ear uh, and gives quite a bit of information. Can tell uh, can tell an ecologist anything from from the, the diet of the fish to uh, to where it's been in migratory patterns. Um, so lots and lots of sample types. Liquids are also possible to ablate as are powders. Okay. Um, I've already mentioned the spatial resolution that you're able to maintain with some applications. That's incredibly important. Um, we talked about rocks before or crystals within them. Uh, called zircons, which have growth rings similar to trees. Um, if you want to be able to analyze the chemistry of the various growth rings, being able to do that through dissolution is impossible. Um, if you use laser ablation in very small spot sizes, you can see each growth uh, each growth ring individually. You can see um, 
a tremendous amount of information and to learn about that, uh, that rock's magnetic process. Um, you're also able to do depth profiling uh, with the technique, which can also be very useful. Um, with some applications, uh, I used microchips earlier, I'll stick with that. Um, there can be a layer of gold found within microchips uh, that, of course, if you were to do dissolution, would just become a portion of the mixture. But with laser ablation, you're actually able to drill down through the sample. You can find that layer in particular and analyze it and even any um, any contaminants that might be within the gold itself. So very, very uh, advantageous there. Now, when we talk about laser ablation versus other techniques, um, you know, there, it has a lot of advantages. I always say that uh, all the techniques have uh, have significant advantages, and they all have a place in your your analytical tool belt. Um, but laser has a really nice place where it fits because it doesn't have a lot of the limitations that others do. Uh, for instance, glow discharge, uh, GDMS, is a tremendous technique, but there are some challenges with it. Specifically, you're limited on the size and shape of the samples that you're able to ablate. Um, XRF also has a, a really uh, some really nice advantages, but you have the, the obvious limitation of detection limits. With spark emission, uh, non-conducting samples can be a challenge. And laser ablation just gives you a really nice mix of all of those um, with, with regard to the, the sample type, uh, being able to do bulk spatial or depth analysis and work with just about any kind of sample. So what does laser ablation look like? Well, this is obviously extremely simplified, but uh, my goal here is to show you on the left side of the screen, the U where, where it's labeled UV laser, um, is, is our laser source or our light engine. It's where the beam originates. You'll see that line coming out of it hits, uh, hits another line there and bounces off. Uh, to put the light down into the sample chamber. Um, that, that one bounce is, in this case, uh, indicative of the full light path, which I'll show on the, on the next slide. Um, but the idea essentially is that we take that beam of light, it goes through a number of optics, uh, and then goes down into the sample chamber to strike the sample. You'll notice that the camera itself sits directly above in line with the sample, which is extremely important as it allows us to, uh, to view the spot uh, without having to have it off axis uh, and view on an angle. Once the sample is ablated, the analytical plume that I referenced before comes up into the cell and is then swept through by the carrier gas and into the torch. As that happens, there's a couple of gases that can be put in, including the argon makeup that you would expect. We also bleed in a small amount of nitrogen, which can help um, help boost sensitivity. Um, all the gases that we're talking about here um, are um, have their own uh, mass flow controllers and are, are controlled within the uh, within the laser itself. So to expand on that uh, light path that I, saw, that I spoke about before, here we show it for, our, for an axomer system. Towards the bottom left, you see that light engine again where that beam is produced before it passes through a shutter, allowing us to turn it on or off, quite simply. Um, the beam then bounces 
before going through an optical attenuator, which allows us to uh, to reduce the power of the beam, um, and eventually makes its way to a homogenizer. Homogenization of the beam is extremely important. Um, what it does for us at the end of the day is it makes sure that the the entirety of the beam is um, it, well homogenized. Uh, it's all the same. There's no hot spot in the middle. That's what would happen if you weren't homogenizing. Is essentially you'd end up with uh, with the middle than it is on the outside. The way that we do that is we actually take the beam, we split it apart into a lot of small beams and then put it back together. And that, that works very, very well. The result of that is that you end up with a perfectly cylindrical flat-bottomed crater, which is extremely important uh, for the technique. Uh, if you didn't, because the beam would be hotter in the middle, you'd actually end up with a conical-shaped uh, crater instead. Uh, and that makes a lot of this uh, quite a bit more challenging. It's important to, to remember that uh, even though we're ablating the surface and what on a, a very small scale looks like a, um, you know, basically an explosion occurring, um, it's all very well controlled. And, and you get a, a feel for that based upon the, uh, just how, how beautiful the crater shapes are. And as I say, how true to being cylindrical and flat bottomed they are. So after the beam leaves the homogenizer, it goes to an aperture uh, where we're able to restrict the beam size and basically cut it down to the spot size that we'd like to uh, to ablate on the surface of the sample. Um, we can use uh, a variety of spot sizes. Our, our Exomer systems, as a for instance, um, have up to uh, 60 spots um, that you can use. Um, and we, we have the option for the use of XY theta options as well, which, uh, which extend that quite a bit further. Um, so essentially, uh, you have the opportunity to go all the way down sub-micron uh, to as big as 250 microns, depending upon the systems they're using. So quite a big difference. The idea, of course, with smaller spot sizes, you get better resolution, especially with sample mapping. Um, but with the larger spots, you're going to get more material in and be able to increase sensitivity. So we always tell people, typically, uh, when we're doing our method development, we like to use the smallest font size that we're able, where we still receive the sensitivity that we need. Okay? And then you'll see the beam continue on through a number of bounces before it reaches the sample cell and the ablation occurs. Uh, we want to keep the number of bounces that occur to a minimum, uh, because every time the, uh, the beam strikes one, of course, you have a little bit of loss. That's just the, uh, the sheer physics of it. Um, but we intentionally keep those uh, the number of bounces as small as possible, and I believe that we use fewer than anybody else in the market, which is which is wonderful. You'll notice there's a couple of other things here, including uh, rotating polarizers, uh, which are important for being able to to view different samples um, uh, di differently depending upon uh, their makeup and the lighting used. Uh, three different lighting sources are also employed here. Um, I include this slide because I, I like to point out that you can essentially think about the laser, um, you know, maybe a little bit oversimplified, but you can essentially think of the laser as an auto sampler um, for, for the ICP. At the end of the day, uh, what the laser is really doing is it's taking some amount of material and it's delivering it to the ICPMS itself for detection. Um, so in this case, of course, it tends to be a, a little bit more expensive than your typical auto sampler, um, and there's a little bit more to it, but as I say, at the end of the day, that's the main goal, is it's just getting the material uh, into the ICP OES or the ICP MS itself.
Now I've pointed to or pointed uh, toward the uh, the sample chamber a, a couple of times, and I made reference to the fact that uh, we'll do a whole history of sample chambers and then the development process in subsequent uh, seminars. For this one in particular, I'm simply going to show you what our uh, primary sample chamber looks like on our XMR systems. We call it the Helix 2 sample chamber. Uh, it was developed uh, in uh, Dr. Dragon's lab at ANU in Australia. Uh, this is a, the second iteration of it. It is the most peer-reviewed sample chamber in the market today. We're, we're extremely proud of that. Um, and it allows you to, to place your samples in a variety of ways. Um, you'll notice the, the, the brass chamber over there on the left has an arm that sticks into it and a, um, and a metal drawer that sits underneath that arm. It's within that drawer that the samples are actually placed, um, either through one-inch round pucks where you would take a sample and place it in a, uh, an epoxy before analyzing. It also has half-inch rounds, uh, which are often used for, uh, for standards, and it has a place for four thin section or petrographic slides, uh, more often uh, than not used for biological um, samples uh, and the like. Now, that cup always sits in exactly the same place, um, su such that the laser beam comes down through the top of it, uh, goes down through a small hole in the bottom, and ablates the surface of the sample. The sample chamber and the samples that are within it, of course, move uh, on stages such that they, we position the sample underneath that cup. Then when we pass the beam down through it, it strikes the sample, the analytical plume comes up and is kind of pushed up by a flow within this outer sample chamber that meets a flow that's pushing down from the top of the cup. Um, that's what's illustrated on this, uh, this picture on the right, is these two flows kind of coming together to push that plume um, into the sample arm, which leads directly to the ICPMS. Um, what what that process, the amount of time that it takes for all of that happen to happen, is referred to as washout, and is an important uh, term that you'll often hear when people are talking about laser ablation. About five years ago, having a washout time of of under a second was considered very very good. Um, that's changed since that time. Uh, the sample chamber that you see here now, the Helix uh, sample chamber, has a uh, a standard washout time of between six and, and 700 milliseconds. So 600 to 700 milliseconds, uh, also very strong. We released a product a couple of years ago that um, I know many of you are already familiar with called the ARIS that we'll talk about in the subsequent uh, presentations. Um, for this purpose right now, I just want to point out that it essentially allows us to take the effluent and place it very, very quickly into the torch. We're able to take that washout time from about 600 milliseconds down to about 30. So uh, a, a tremendous improvement there. Okay. Now talking again about, uh, about the laser and the, the wavelength. Um, we have a, a variety of systems that we make, um, ranging from fusions systems, which are intended uh, to, to heat samples, um, all the way to femtosecond systems, where that's exactly the opposite of what we want, uh, and every, everything in between. Um, the way that we do that depends upon the laser itself. 
uh, for our 213 nanometer uh, system we call the LSX 213. Um, it's a, a neodymium YAG laser. Uh, the way that that works um, is it starts as a uh, 1064 nanometer beam, and then that beam passes through a series of uh, harmonic crystals. And depending upon which crystals are used in what order, we're able to change the wavelength of that beam. And you'll see by using a second, third, and fifth harmonic crystal, um, we're able to, to change that 1064 down to the 213 that we offer commercially. Um, when I first started in laser ablation, uh, my product manager at the time explained that process to me and just referred to them as the magic crystals and said, well, there was a tremendous amount of detail in physics that could be shared. Uh, that conceptually worked uh, worked uh, pretty well, B, and that's all you really need to know about them. <laughs> I always found that a, a very humorous uh, antidote. Now, you'll notice that there's also 193 nanometer lasers. That, that represents the vast majority of what we sell today. Now, that starts as a 193. There's no, uh, no magic crystal necessary uh, there. And we do also offer femtosecond systems, each having their own advantages uh, in what they offer showing that a little bit, talking about the wavelength and, and coupling efficiency. Um, the idea typically is that uh, as you analyze materials that are more clear or translucent, uh, transparent or translucent, um, you want to use a shorter wavelength because they couple better to it. Okay? What I mean by that is that if you were analyzing quartz as a, for instance, a clear material like that, um, you would want to do it with a 193, the, the narrower, narrowest of those wavelengths, uh, because it couples well to that material and you end up with a better ablation because of it. Now, if you were to use a 213 uh, as an example, where you'll notice here your transmission percentage for that is about 60%, so you're looking at 40% uh, absorption. Um, that beam tends to go deeper into the material and kind of builds up until you get essentially a catastrophic ablation. Now, it's still on a very small scale, mind you, uh, but that, that explosion that occurs um, ends up robbing us of the cylindrical crater that we mentioned before as, as being our end goal. Um, so in order to have the best controlled ablation, we want to have that narrower wavelength. Now, if you are using, uh, you know, opaque material, you're doing bulk analysis or something of the like, um, then a 213 or even a 266 uh, can work very well. Um, but as I say, as you get towards those clearer materials, or if you're doing biologicals, you'll end up with better results uh, with a narrower wavelength. The next concept I wanted to introduce is fractionation. So. In its simplest form, we define fractionation as when the elemental composition of the material being measured at the detector is not representative of the sample's true composition, meaning essentially um, our result doesn't match uh, what, what it should have. And there's a number of ways that this can occur. Um, fractionation increases if you have larger particle sizes. Um, if your particle size are a, uh, uh, if your particle sizes vary, you have some big, some small, that's what we mean by PS distribution, particle size distribution, um, and if they differ in mass or volatility. So in an ideal world, uh, perfect sample type, we would want very small sizes. Uh, we'd want them to be consistently small and have a similar mass and volatility. 
by doing that, you get the most representative um, sample result. And kind of giving you a visual, uh, a little bit of this, and something that can that can contribute to it. Um, I want to talk about the difference in the way that the sample looks when it reaches the torch. Most of us are familiar with, or spent the majority of our career doing liquid nebulization, um, where you end up with this um, very consistent, flat, high sensitivity signal. Um, laser ablation is different because you're actually taking particles and and, uh, and and putting them into the torch, so it tends to be less uh, less consistent. You can have large particles that aren't ionized at all, so you can actually see them uh, see them here entering uh, the torch. Um, you'll also notice that if you're looking at the corresponding um, MS data, that the signal would appear much noisier than it would with aqueous analysis. Uh, but in this case, all of that you know quote unquote noise is all very real data. It's just uh, all coming from the individual particles as they're being ablated. So it's just a, a little bit of a different way of looking at it as all. Okay. Now, and kind of further in that, this uh, this graphic is intended uh, to show exactly how that fractionation uh, can occur and what I mean by the uh, by the the distribution within. So if you look at this large particle here on the left, um, we show it as kind of being split in a number of ways. Um, <clears throat> our goal is that we would like the the, uh, the elemental composition to be well distributed throughout so you don't end up with trapped particles, which can lead to a uh, poor representation. Um, if we're, we have the smallest particles possible, then that becomes much harder uh, to do and you end up with a more representative sample. Okay. And then just as one final uh, piece on this, uh, I think the slide does a, a really nice job of pointing out uh, the different wavelengths and, and the advantages or challenges with any of them. You'll notice as you go lower and lower um, with with the wavelength, your your heating effects uh, fall off, which of course is, is our goal, unless we're, as I said, using a 1064 for the intent of heating. We also end up with far less fractionation uh, when we're using a 193 or a tenth of a second laser uh, and, a, and a narrow particle size distribution. So um, I always tell people that uh, a 193 can do everything a 213 can do. It, it just typically does it better. <laughs> of course, there's uh, there's some other challenges that there. There are different price points and, and, and complexities and all that sort of thing. Um, but uh, but you can obviously see why the market has trended towards 193s. As the uh, as the technique has become more mature and less and less pricey. So, for those of you that have not seen laser ablation in the past, I thought it was important to show exactly what this looked like. So, this is uh, a sample actually being ablated—a simple raster on the surface of a, a metal sample. So, you'll see the serpentine pattern. And just a very small amount is being taken off the surface at any given time and put right into uh, into the uh, ICP. And then I've already touched on what can be ablated. Well, this varies pretty significantly because just about any kind of sample works. Um, zircons are certainly a very, very common uh, sample to be ablated because we work with a lot of geochemistry laboratories. Um, they, are, they are the crystals that have the growth rings that I mentioned before, for those of you that are unfamiliar. We also work with people doing ice cores for, for climatology and paleoclimatology. Uh, 
uh, as you would imagine, so we have ways to pool our samples even within the sample chamber, which is nice. And then you'll see a whole host of other variety uh, of samples, including uh, paper for forensics, hair. Uh, biologicals are becoming far more common. And um, uh, especially when, when talking about sample mapping, which we'll touch on uh, shortly. And then to give you an idea of what these systems look like themselves, uh, our 213 system that I've referenced before is the one on the top left with our XMR system, our XMR systems being down below it, um, and our, our femtosecond system being on the top right-hand corner. What I'd really like to point out is that uh, the sample chamber that you see and the 213 system and the Pharos, it's the same sample chamber. So it gives you kind of a, a nice view of, uh, of the, uh, the scale that we're talking about here. That 213 system fits nicely on a bench top where, uh, where the Exumers are, are floor mounted and it provides their own table, if you will. And then the one system that I didn't have on that last slide is our, our newest offering called the Iridia. Uh, it will be a big portion of next week's talk uh, that, uh, that Damon will, uh, will provide. Um, the Iridia is a, is a tremendous system. Um, what's going to sound a, a lot like sales rhetoric and hyperbole, you'll forgive me. Um, the Iridia is a culmination of a significant evolution in uh, laser design, specifically because it's so fast. Um, it has laser uh, speeds of up to uh, 1,000 hertz. Uh, it also has washout times that we talked about before. You know, we talked about the having 30 milliseconds be exceptional. This system is actually capable of uh, sub-millisecond washout times. Um, so the resolutions that come from it are, are pretty incredible. And then where I want to finish up is talking a little bit about applications. Um, you know, we've, we've already talked about them can be used. I think this does a nice way of, of uh, putting them into the markets in which they apply. Um, Earth sciences, as I mentioned, is, is a really big one for us. I spend a lot of time in uh, geology labs or geochemistry labs. Um, forensics is another. Uh, we showed that ink um, on paper um, before, which, which is very neat. We've also seen um, analyses that, uh, that have come from uh, broken glass. Um, maybe there was a, a burglar or something that had a piece of glass. Um, that was left uh, in their clothing. They were able to analyze that glass and match it back to uh, to a burgled home or business. Um, same can be done for paint in the event of a hit and run or something where uh, not only the the, uh, the paint can be matched, it can often be matched to within a specific lot. So um, very, very neat stuff. Um, Archaeology is a great one, whether we're talking about pottery shards or bone, there's some really neat applications out there. So to show you some neat examples, um, this one I think is, is neat for a couple of reasons uh, that I'll get into. What you're looking at here are stalagmites uh, that were analyzed um, from a cave that was near an old Roman gold mine. And when you, were, when you actually analyze these uh, samples, we, and I'm using the word we very loosely in this case, someone other than I, um, was able to uh, to look at the, uh, the the specific growth band within the stalagmite caused by the drip drop in in the cave and be able to find the exact timeline in which that Roman mine existed. 
and you can actually see the gold layer that appears there in the middle. So very, very neat. The other reason why I like this slide and uh, to talk about it is that with stalagmites, as you can imagine, they're growing as the water drops onto it, right? And so as it grows, uh, it's it's not growing uh, it's not growing in a perfect layer. The growth uh, pattern is not uh, parallel to the cave floor, if you will. Instead, it creates kind of a, an uh, arc. Um, so what's nice about laser ablation is that you're able to look at a slice and be able to uh, follow or trace the actual line and, and take a growth, um, an entire growth ring, uh, as opposed to just taking a slice, which may incorporate several rings. Okay. I've mentioned zircons a number of times. Um, Zircon analysis is, is uh, as I said, kind of our bread and butter. We do an awful lot of work in this world. Um, it used to be done uh, ex almost exclusively through the, uh, the spot analysis, where a researcher would identify a spot within, and they would blast a hole in the middle of it and look at the resulting um, chemistry. What we've seen more and more and more of now because of the smaller spots that are capable and the speeds that are achievable is that uh, people are looking at mapping the entirety of the crystal. You'll see here, uh, this crystal can be mapped in less than 10 minutes and the amount of information that can be gained is pretty profound in comparison to a single spot. Um, especially with the smaller spot size that are being used, oftentimes we're able to see growth rings that may have otherwise been missed. And this is one of my favorite slides. What you're looking at here is a garnet that was analyzed. Um, it's, a, it's a fairly big garnet, uh, greater than five millimeters in size. And this was analyzed in only 48 minutes, which is, again, a, a pretty tremendous um, advantage uh, if you were to think about this being done by microprobe as a, for instance it might have taken over 14 hours. Um, you'll see it cycling through the different elements so it's important to remember that each pixel contains all of the underlying elemental information and uh, um, yeah it's very very cool to me. Okay. Um, the last example that I want to show then is of a a stain uh, that was then analyzed <clears throat> and with the uh, the uh, elemental data overlay. Um, one of our softwares that we utilize called HDIP allows for the import of imagery from different sources. So you can import SEM data or x-ray data if you'd like. Um, stains like this could be uh, could be imported. So what you end up with then is if you were to overlay, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the data on top of the slide, you can end up with a, a beautiful example uh, like this. We're able to see intensity in the Z. Um, and this can actually, uh, this is a video that can be created with within the software HDIP in order, in order to give you a flyover and um, be able to look at the individual features. Okay. Now also utilizing HDIP, uh, which I mentioned before is a secondary software that we utilize for data interpretation. 
um, we're able to to look at a lot of mapping and uh, samples and control the the imagery that's created um, has a, a tremendous number of options available to you as a researcher, including the ability to look for uh, regions of interest, which are identified automatically. It's extremely automated to assist you in your efforts and is wizard-based as well. Um, that's one of these things that we'll talk about in a lot of detail uh, in the upcoming webinars. What you're looking at here are the different Beely and um, uh, the small intestine of a mouse. Um, you'll see that the imagery is um, is excellent. Uh, down there at the bottom, that is a scale of just the zinc being shown with the full mapping um, there. In this case, the uh, we're using one micron spot sizes, so um, a very, very small, excellent resolution. And the total acquisition time in the sample was, was only 35 minutes. We're also able to generate um, three-dimensional images on a very large scale. So we talked about zircons before, and typically the analysis of the zircon is done uh, two-dimensionally. Uh, what we've done here is we actually utilized, um, we utilized a, a microtome to go through and do the slicing of, of the sample very thin, and then analyzed each slice uh, in a total of 100 layers before the HDIP software put all of those layers back together and generated the 3D image that you're seeing there. Okay. That can also be applied to biologicals where in this example, you're seeing um, the analysis of a water flea. Okay. Um, it's a little hard on the water flea, mind you. <laughs> but with that being said, um, you're able to again see the individual layers that were stitched together to create the 3D rendering, rotatable 3D rendering that you're seeing there. Um, pretty incredible stuff. Um, and this is all again uh, generated through HDIP, which does a really nice job of, of providing you with options as it relates to, uh, to the, the imagery and uh, data processing. So I'm, I'm a little bit over on time. The, the last slide that I have for you is simply to, uh, to tell you a little bit about the upcoming seminars. So as I said, this was really intended to try and fit several hours worth of information into a 30-minute discussion. Uh, we were close. Uh, we did it about 35. <laughs> uh, but we're going to get a lot more in-depth in the next two weeks. Specifically, uh, Dr. Damon Green, who is our product manager as well as our vice president of marketer technology, is going to speak next week. Uh, Damon is a geochemist um, and is going to go through the evolution of LAICPMS uh, through collaborative science, basically showing uh, the development of new sample cell designs, um, not just uh, how the sample chambers and, and the light engines have evolved, uh, but how they've got us to where we are uh, and, and where the technique is going in the future. Um, beyond that, uh, the week following, uh, Ciprian uh, Strepin, who is a uh, brilliant geochemist as well, is going to speak uh, on applications of laser ablation in a lot more uh, depth than I did today, showing a lot of examples and utilizing HDIP um, to show you exactly how we can interpret that and get the most out of it. Okay. Um, everyone should receive uh, or should probably has already received uh, a couple of emails with invitations to those that I greatly encourage you to to sign up okay